Carly Kind and I'm the director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is a research institute established by the Nuffield Foundation to ensure that data and AI work for people and society. We research the societal implications and ethical questions which arise with the use of new data-driven technologies. I'm also a human rights lawyer and an expert in privacy and data law, and it's those issues which give birth to my lecture this evening, and many thanks to the National Archives for asking me to give this annual digital lecture. I want to interrogate what I see as the death of anonymity in the age of identity. What happens when nobody is a nobody and everybody is a somebody? Imagine you're a citizen of Belarus, enraged by the sham re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko and dedicated to seeing democracy in your country. How do you join the movement, organise with your fellow protesters, plan demonstrations and document human rights abuses, cases of torture and ill treatment by the authorities? Facebook would be the obvious avenue for organisation, but it requires that you join with your real name. You're an ordinary person, not a radical campaigner, and don't normally feel comfortable speaking publicly about politics. You know that Twitter doesn't require you to use your real name, so you set up an anonymous Twitter account and follow other protesters. You visit websites with information about protest times and dates, but you don't leave comments. That should be enough to fly below the radar, right? But then, a few months after his election, Lukashenko orders the police to access private Facebook groups of protesters expressing dissent against the administration. He issues a summons to Twitter requesting the identification details and IP addresses associated with anonymous Twitter accounts critiquing the administration. And he serves a warrant on a website hosting company demanding access to the IP address of every person who visited a particular anti-Lukashenko website, which was used to coordinate protests. You may not have left comments or followed protest accounts in your real name, but you're identifiable by your IP address, along with the other 1.3 million people who visited the website and whose identity the president is demanding to know. This is not a dystopian scenario designed to scare you, but nor is it factually accurate. The real presidential election at the centre of this story was held in a democratic country, it was the US Customs and Border Patrol Administration who issued a summons to Twitter, American police who sought access to the Facebook group of a group of protesters demonstrating against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the US Department of Justice, which served a warrant on a website hosting company, DreamHost, demanding access to the IP address of every person who had visited a protest website. The number of people whose identity the government sought to unmask was 1.3 million. Here's a question that Google can't answer for you. What do Thomas Paine, Malala and Banksy all have in common? Each of them has published political works under the veil of anonymity. Paine's 1776 Common Sense, which argued for in independence from England and the creation of a democratic republic, was attributed only to an Englishman. Before the brutal shooting and miraculous recovery that would make her a household name, Malala wrote an anonymous blog for BBC Urdu, documenting life under the Taliban. And artist Banksy has published artworks critiquing capitalism, refugee policy, Brexit, Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories and climate change, all while concealing his true identity. These are well-known examples are testament to the important role that anonymity can play in fostering vibrant public debate, supporting radical and progressive movements and enabling critique and political scrutiny. 
Anonymity has acted to embolden those who would otherwise self-censor out of fear of recriminations. People like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who published the Federal paper, Federalist Papers anonymously. Closer to home, bloggers such as Guido Fawkes and The Secret Barrister have embraced pseudonyms while sharing brutally honest inside reflections on politics and the legal fraternity. This function of anonymity to insulate those challenging the status quo or speaking truth to power is a critical one in any democracy. As the US Supreme Court observed in its 1995 decision in McIntyre and Ohio Elections Commissions, which concerned the distribution of leaflets at a public meeting on school taxes. Anonymity is a shield from the tyranny of the majority that exemplifies the purpose of the First Amendment to protect unpopular individuals from retaliation at the hands of an intolerant society. And yet anonymity is on its way to obsolescence. For thousands of years, it has been possible to remain a nobody, if not in identity, then at least in name. But although the numbers might tell a different story, with a global population projected to reach more than 9 billion by 2050, remaining faceless in a crowd should become easier, not harder. The reality is that we very soon will have no choice but to be somebody to everybody in almost all facets of our life. Far from being able to eschew a name, we are being required to have an identity. In fact, we are entering the era of persistent identification. Everywhere we go and in everything we do, we are identified. Much of this is passive ambient identification. We're tracked across platforms and apps by data brokers with the solitary goal of identity resolution. Increasingly, we are also subject to active identification at hospitals, borders, in voting booths, on public transport, online and offline. Increasingly, we are left with few opportunities to be nobody, but instead are required to be a somebody and to prove it. Much ink has been spilled about the death of privacy in the internet age, and I do not wish to rehash that here. I'm not talking about what happened to privacy, although that is undeniably a bleak story in itself. Privacy is the ability to make autonomous decisions about one's information, thoughts, body and family. It often manifests in the ability to keep certain things secret, hidden or outside of the public domain. Anonymity is something much more subtle. Often it is exercised in plain sight in the public domain. It implies a nuanced set of choices to disclose one's informational thoughts, but under conditions which shield the individual's own identity. The two concepts are interlinked and mutually dependent, and they often operate as two sides of the same coin. Privacy would act to prevent police from intercepting emails between a lawyer and their client, whereas anonymity would protect the identity of a witness testifying in that trial. Privacy protects the confidentiality of phone calls conducted between journalists and their sources, but anonymity attaches to the sources when the journalists publish their expose. Privacy would operate to stop CCTV surveillance of polling booths during an election, whereas anonymity enables individuals to cast an unattributable vote. As a society, we've become accustomed in recent years to exploring what we lose when our privacy is eroded. From the chilling effect of widespread surveillance on activist movements and radical thinking, to the consumer harms of corporate data collection. But we've spent little time thinking about the value and the risks of anonymity and what we might gain or lose with its demise. So I wanted to spend today's lecture interrogating this trend, the death of anonymity in the age of identity. For many thousands of years of human history, there was little need for the concept of anonymity, nor for its opposite, identifiability. 
Families and communities knew the members of those families and communities, herds and towns. Extended travel was impossible and then uncommon. Expression was primarily verbal and thus unattributable. Two innovations changed this predominant position. The advent of writing, and particularly the printing press, and the democratisation of travel beyond royalty, trade and war that came with the Industrial Revolution. It was with the invention of the printing press and the availability of written literature for mainstream audiences that the notion of anonymous expression came to be crystallised. The concept was originally used as an adjective, anonymous, to describe when a poem had no author, from the end of the 16th century onwards. At the time, poems which had previously been written on parchment without need for attribution were being printed for a mass audience for the first time. From the beginning, anonymous expression was a tool for the marginalised or those in fear of retribution. Poetry was often written by women or was affiliated with those of a lower social class and its writers wanted to withhold their names. Virginia Woolf is quoted as saying, I would venture to guess that Anon, who wrote so many poems without signing them, was often a woman. Over time, women have often clung to anonymity or pseudonymity to protect forms of written expression, from Charlotte Bronte and Emily Dickinson to Nikki Gemmell, whose 2003 novel The Bride Stripped Bear was published anonymously, to J.K. Rowling, whose most recent work was written under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith. Anonymity came to be used by those afraid of sharing their works or expecting critique. Writers such as John Milton, William Black, William Wordsworth, Robert Browning and Alfred Tennyson all reportedly published works anonymously. Anonymity also became a shield for those expressing political, sensitive or radical ideas. John Locke's two treatises of government and Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto were published anonymously. The father of the American Revolution, Thomas Paine, published his pamphlet Common Sense anonymously. And a few years later, the Federalist Papers by Hamilton and Madison were published anonymously. Over time, anonymous expression became more possible and more popular, even in the 1930s becoming an aesthetic ideal for some authors who wished to avoid the conflation of the personality of the author with its work itself. At the same time, anonymous being moving about the world anonymously was becoming less popular. Although passports had existed for some time in Britain, it was the First World War and the subsequent movement of refugees from Europe to America, which saw a unified global attempt to introduce identification mechanisms, such as the passport, to enable people to be identified as they moved about the world. National identity systems followed in the lead up to and aftermath of World War II, with governments in Europe and Asia viewing ID cards as a mechanism for strengthening state authority and exerting sovereignty in an atmosphere of conflict. Anonymous being became more difficult as the mechanisms for identification became mainstreamed and reliable ways of verifying one's identity became available. Over time, identity cards and passports became more difficult to falsify, particularly with the introduction of biometric data such as photographs and fingerprints. And then came the internet, which amplified and complexified both anonymity and identifiability. For the first 20 years of its lifespan in public use, the internet and digital devices which it connects often served to enable anonymity and frustrate identifiability. For the most part, the internet and the World Wide Web were technically designed for anonymity, limiting the amount of information an individual needed to disclose, knowingly or by default, in order to browse. The internet democratised communication and the web information 
and the billions of people who went online from the 1990s onwards could choose whether to share their identity or not. It made it possible to assume different identities, and this was the one, one of the most thrilling things about it. The internet exploded the possibilities for expression, created new audiences, enabled collaborations, and emancipated the control of information from established interests. Citizen journalism and bloggers emerged, whistleblowers were aided by the internet and the protection it provided, and leaked materials provided to outfits such as WikiLeaks sparked immense debate, controversy, and ultimately political revolution in the Arab world. After the turn of the millennium, the tide also began to turn. As people began sharing personal information online, it became not only easy to assume different identities, but to steal others. This meant a sharp increase in identity fraud. In 2009, 11 million Americans were the victim of identity theft online. With the advent of social media, Facebook in 2004 and Twitter in 2006, and Google's purchase of YouTube the same year, a new form of media and communication began to shape the trajectory of the internet. Negative behaviours, which had of course existed online since the internet's inception, were given new scale and scope, and online bullying, harassment and trolling started to penetrate the platforms. The potential for misinformation and disinformation to sway political opinion and ultimately elections was still an inconceivable side effect of the growth of social media platforms. But the notion that online civility was rife and that it thrived in anonymity began to take hold. In 2004, John Sula's The Psychology of Cyberspace described for the first time the online disinhibition effect, which he argued contained six factors which combined to change people's behaviour online. Anonymity was one of those six factors, alongside invisibility, the lack of authority figures, and the ability to forget that the online world is populated by real people. Subsequent research has disagreed about the extent to which anonymity is a critical factor in the online disinhibition effect, which leads to otherwise ordinary people perpetuating harmful and abusive behaviour online. There has been advanced at least an argument that identifiability rather than anonymity might increase negative online behaviour as people seek to gain online popularity through negative negative behaviours. For example, the study, a study that looked at more than 500,000 comments from around 1,600 online petitions on a German platform found that non-anonymous individuals were more aggressive than anonymous ones. But in any event, the idea that anonymity was to blame for uncivil or toxic online culture began to take hold. This idea was reinforced by national security and law enforcement communities, which as part of the post 9-11 securitization agenda and a, a recent awakening to the problems of cybercrime began to vocalize a critique of anonymity as enabling of extremist movements and online violence. The amount of child sexual abuse material available online undoubtedly increased throughout the noughties, as did violent and extremist material. The ease of reproduction and the scale of the problem caused police and national security agencies to start to demand technical solutions to the technological barriers they faced in policing online, chief among them anonymity. At the same time as these sociological shifts in collective fears about social media and the risks to online safety were emerging, a new force was beginning to shape behaviour online, incentivising the same kinds of harmful behaviour. It's difficult to believe now, but targeted advertising wasn't always the business model of the internet. 
Indeed, as Carissa Valise reminds us in her excellent new book, Privacy is Power, in 1998, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the inventors of Google search algorithm, argued against Google depending on ads for revenue. A decade later, they had developed AdWords and AdSense and bought DoubleClick, an ad company which pioneered the use of cookies to obtain users' personal data, including their browsing history. And Google's business model had transitioned from search engine to advertising company. Its vice president of online global sales, Sheryl Sandberg, later left Google to work at a little internet startup that was hemorrhaging cash without a sustainable business model. As COO, she convinced her CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, that Facebook's financial success lay in ads. Today, Alphabet, Google's parent company, makes 80% of its revenue from ads. For Facebook, that figure is 98.5%. With these two tech giants leading the way, the entire digital ecosystem followed suit and the data economy took hold. Countless free and convenient and wonderful services were born. Uber, Deliveroo, Spotify, Dropbox, WhatsApp, Tinder, to name but a few, all dependent on the same business model, targeted advertising. None of us were paying for the products because, as the now trite saying goes, we were the products. Tech companies were selling our attention, our engagement, the time that our eyeballs would spend looking at advertisements to companies who wanted to sell us products. At first, the attention that tech companies were selling was the generic attention of its users, but very quickly, the business of targeted advertising began to become much more sophisticated. Tech companies offered advertisers the ability to target based on increasingly granular details about the users, and advertisers paid a premium for more targeted advertising. The cycle incentivizes the collection of more and more personal data. The more you know about an online user, the more value their attention and engagement might represent to a potential advertiser. Advertisers were no longer content to market to the type of person who reads the Telegraph, for example. They wanted to market different ads to unemployed women over 60 who read the Telegraph and men under 30 who also follow Manchester United. To do this, the data economy spawned middlemen, data brokers like Oracle, Axicom or Experian, which helped companies find, attract and target new customers and retained existing customers. They do this by accumulating extensive data from a range of different sources, which might include buying lists of data on people from retailers, customer loyalty programs or data sellers, as well as using open source data from social media platforms and third-party tracking cookies or tracking services to observe web and mobile activity. The aim of the game became persistent identification, turning online nobodies into somebodies, uniquely identifying internet users as they move across the web. Data brokers call this identity resolution, matching up disparate data sets obtained from across millions of sources and resolving the data into a single list of unique internet users who can be identified across their digital activity. Far from allowing users to remain anonymous, data brokers want to identify uniquely every single person online and match them with records they have about their offline consumer activity. They link, for example, a Tesco customer loyalty card with a Facebook account, with a health insurance record and a Virgin SIM card. They connect that person up with public records they have on consumer surveys, email subscriber lists, warranty registrations, home loans and electoral registration. And then they make a range of inferences about the person, predicting their likelihood that they'll buy a pink sweater, for example, or want to take out a car insurance policy and sell that prediction on to brands, companies, tech platforms and advertisers. 
non-commercial application of these types of micro-targeting capabilities are of course possible too, as has been well documented in the case of political micro-targeting and disinformation. Less well known is the use of targeting such as this to, for example, send young women contemplating abortion anti-choice propaganda, which is a form of targeted advertising in the US. Using mobile geofencing, an advertising company sends pro-choice information to women as they are sitting in Planned Parenthood waiting rooms awaiting abortion. Anonymity is antithetical to the data economy. The data economy depends on persistent identification of everyone all the time, and it incentivizes the collection of all sorts of identity data about a person. Some of that is data we might not necessarily consider identity data. IP addresses, device identifiers, the amount of battery charge left on our iPhone, our location, our phone network, but these become little pieces of the puzzle that help data brokers bring together a complete picture of us as an internet user and an online consumer. The data economy also incentivizes the collection of more, person of more personally identifiable information, names, addresses, dates of birth, and email addresses. It incentivizes platforms to require users to use their real names, a rule that Facebook implemented in 2015, or to provide single sign-on services using Google or Facebook accounts. It motivates offline retailers to collect digital details, to establish customer loyalty schemes and offer discounts in exchange for email addresses, or to collect IP addresses and identifiers of the phones of in-store customers in order to permit the linking up of offline and online records. One day soon, it will see high street stores using facial recognition technology to identify customers on the basis of their Facebook profiles while they shop, technology that Facebook started trialing in 2017. Companies such as Oracle claim they have up to 30,000 data attributes on each of their consumer profiles. That's 30,000 pieces of information about each individual they track. And some data brokers claim they're tracking up to around 2 billion unique individuals. What is left then of anonymity in the age of identity? Increasingly, it's almost impossible to move about online or off in a truly anonymous way. Between the online tracking which feeds the data economy and its offline equivalent, which also entails the expansion of facial recognition, gate recognition systems, to do everything from searching for criminals in public places to assessing the mood and gender of consumers in a shopping mall, we are persistently identified in some form wherever we go. Increasingly, we have to use official documents to authenticate our identity in healthcare facilities, at borders, even in voting booths. We may not always be identified by name, often we are identified by IP address or by device, by email address or by social media handle. In almost all instances, we are identified with a view to making inferences or predictions or assessments. And if you want to be a nobody, is it possible to browse the web untracked? It is if you use anonymizing software like Tor, or you could go pseudonymously by using a virtual private network but entirely covering your tracks is near impossible. Some messaging services deploy end-to-end -end encryption, meaning their contents aren't analyzable by the platforms that provide them. Facebook, in the case of WhatsApp and Messenger, for example, but users do still produce metadata enough to identify them. You can still use Twitter without using your real name, though law enforcement authorities can demand Twitter disclose users' IP addresses, which can be used to re-identify anonymous users. Many forums and news sites have banned anonymous commentators and dating sites often require users to display verifiable forms of ID before use.
Some have even mooted that there should exist a legal obligation to use one's real name online. South Korea mandated uh, such a law, but it was ultimately overturned by the country's constitutional court. Since 2017, anyone using Chinese websites has to provide their name and phone number. And as my examples at the beginning of this lecture illustrate, the Trump administration has actively sought to unmask the identity of internet users leaking Trump information, anti-Trump information, sorry, affiliating with anti-Trump protest group or critiquing the administration in other ways. A Brazilian court has enforced an existing constitutional ban on anonymity by forcing the Apple, uh, Apple and Google to remove the secret app, an anonymous social network chatting app from their app stores. Is this such a bad thing? Perhaps persistent identification will, in the end, lead to greater civility online and off. We will need time to understand and measure the qualitative impact of the declining space for anonymous expression. As yet, there is no evidence to suggest that incivility, harassment, trolling and hate speech online are declining. Most people would probably say anecdotally that the opposite is true. Two thirds of adults in the UK are concerned about content online and close to half say they've seen hateful content in the past year. If the rapid spread of footage of the Christchurch mosque attacks is anything to go by, Facebook identified and re removed at least 1.5 million uploads of the video within the first 24 hours after the report. Real name policies have not yet prevented the sharing of violent or extremist materials. Policing of child sexual abuse and terrorism online has undoubtedly been made easier by certain identification interventions, such as the use of hashing of images, but, per but per perpetrators <laughs> continue to innovate to use technology to conceal their crimes. And if we ask ourselves what is lost in the identification of everyone, what the damaging impacts of the erosion of anonymity might be, those are even harder to quantify and observe, for that requires measuring what hasn't unfolded. Who has not spoken out? Who hasn't blown the whistle? Who hasn't levied criticism or satire or critique because they couldn't reliably hide behind the shield of anonymity? What artwork, commentary, journalism have we been deprived of because of the need for persistent identification? If anonymity is a shield from the tyranny of the majority, as the US Supreme Court held it was, what minority views have been trampled by majoritarian impulses? What progressive ideas or radical notions will never come to fruition? What will be the long-term impact on our societies of the need to be always identified, to always be a somebody and never a nobody? And how will we think about anonymity as we move into a post-COVID world, a world in which the mainstream use of physical masks is disrupting the spread of facial recognition technology for identification, but the use of digital technologies for public health surveillance is becoming normalised. In 2019, Austrian legislators introduced legislation banning online anonymity that they labelled the digital mask ban. As cultural attitudes towards physical masks shift, what will be the impact on our approach to the digital mask that anonymity provides? It is critical that these questions get asked, but more importantly that people, not Silicon Valley, not governments in other countries, not data brokers, are asked to answer them. The original promise of the internet was one of democratisation and emancipation, and the true value in data generated by publics should be realised in the public interest, not for corporate gain or for government control. As long as the ability to remain anonymous exists, it will be enjoyed by fascists, trolls and protesters alike. 
but it will also enable those in the minority, those who would normally stay silent, to speak out against the status quo without fear of reprisals. Without the protection of obscurity, dissenting views might disappear altogether, and along with them pluralistic societies, as public discourses homogenise, intolerance becomes mainstream, and populist leaders become increasingly emboldened by the absence of criticism. Perhaps some incivility online is a price worth paying for a tool which might ultimately support democratic debate and lead to more ethical societies. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And please do get in touch if you'd like to continue the conversation. This talk is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.